um, servants as you go and disciple the next generation in the gospel. Uh, we say this to you. You are sent. Also, young disciples, there are sermon guides in the, at the side table if you want to grab those in order to uh, follow along in the sermon this morning. If you're not a young disciple and you want something to take notes on, you can have that as well. Help you keep track with a good outline. Uh, as Aaron said, my name's Tanner. It's an honor to bring the word to you this morning. We're going to spend time in Psalm 73, um, which is a particularly meaningful psalm to me, one that I, had, I have been wrestling with for a couple of years, which doesn't mean it's going to be a long sermon. It's been taking a lot of effort to kind of condense things down, right? Uh, psalm 73 is where we will be. Um, if you have your Bibles, let's open them together there. If you're using one in the uh, chairs, that's going to be on page 485. Um, the title and main point of today's sermon comes from verses 1 and 26, and that is God is good all the time. So we've, that's been our, a good theme this morning, um, and it's a narrative psalm, so we're going to work through the whole passage together in the following scenes. One, the stumble. Scene two, the struggle. And scene three, the sanctuary. Given the length of today's passage and its structure, we're not going to stand and read the whole thing, but we'll just go through it one section at a time. But with that said, let us posture our hearts in such a way that we can say, Church, the Lord has spoken to us and respond together. Speed to God. Amen. We have any Office fans, fans of the show, The Office, in here? Okay, this will, yes. this, this will work better than I was hoping. All right, so in the American show, The Office, one of the main characters, Jim, is notorious for pulling practical jokes on another character, Dwight. And one of those practical jokes, Jim puts all of Dwight's belongings in the vending machine. And... Dwight is furious, and he gets especially furious when, when another character, Pam, comes in and buys his pencil cup. And Dwight says, that's mine. And Pam says, no, I just, I just bought it, so it's mine. And so Dwight has to get his stuff back, and Jim graciously allows him to purchase those items back with a baggie full of nickels. And so Dwight is getting his stuff back in that picture. Now, maybe you can't relate to an office friend putting your stuff in a vending machine, but we can all relate to being on the other side of goodness that we feel is ours looking in. Sometimes we feel like Dwight. Sometimes we're tempted to believe that God has taken all of the goodness he has promised us and has put it just on the other side of glass in sight and out of reach. And sometimes we feel like, as I've expressed in my life, sometimes we feel like it's a practical joke, like God's getting the laugh at us while we look in at the things we want but can't have or don't have. So maybe you feel like that this morning. Maybe you feel like you've been showing up to work and working really, really hard, and being faithful, and doing the right thing. 
But there are people who take shortcuts and gossip and people please, and they get ahead. Or maybe you feel like you're being a faithful steward financially, and you're saving up, and you're investing, and you're keeping aside, and you're tithing, but you just can't catch a financial break. Or you've gone to a doctor's appointment after doctor's appointment, and you've taken all the medicine, and you've done what they've told you to do, but you just face one medical crisis after another. Maybe you feel beat up, excluded, or left out while everyone else is thriving. Psalm 73 is for people like us. It's for people like us who feel that way. On the other side of goodness, looking in, tempted to think, maybe that's not for us. Maybe God doesn't actually intend good things for us. So let's look at scene one, the stumble. Young disciples, you'll need the word stumble for your outline. Verse one, truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. So we have to pause at verse one. Because I just set the scene of like, this is heavy stuff, right? We're looking in on goodness. And then we start with verse one which seems to take a different tone. So we need to, to kind of pause here. If, if the psalm is a musical, then verse 1 is the overture. And to quote the office one more time, if we don't listen to the overture, we won't recognize the musical themes when they come back later. So what are the musical themes? This is the last office quote, by the way. All right. What are the musical themes? Theme 1 is that God is good to Israel. God is good. So the the psalm is going to go in a way we're not expecting. Verse 2. But the overarching theme of this psalm is the goodness of God. And it's the goodness of God that the psalmist is going to be tempted to question. But he puts the saying at the beginning, like, if you're going to read this psalm, no matter what, keep in mind, God is good. Don't forget it. The second part of the psalm, second theme that we need to pay attention to, is the heart. So God is good to the pure in heart. So specifically, we need to pay attention that this psalm is about keeping a pure heart that experiences the goodness of God. So if you're someone who writes in your Bible, maybe make a note as we go through every instance of the word heart. It'd be helpful as you keep track. So briefly, we need to review what is meant by the heart. When the biblical authors write about the heart, what are they talking about? So in short, real brief, the heart is the central place of our identity, where our identity is kind of housed. Okay, So the heart, from the heart, we understand ourselves, who we are, how we're navigating the world. We understand our neighbors, who who other people are, how we relate to them, how they relate to us, and we understand our relationship with the Lord, who we are to him and who he is to us. And so the heart is comprised of four spiritual chambers, four spiritual chambers of the heart, where it is the central place of our knowing. So the Bible makes a distinction between knowing something and knowing it in the heart. There can be a disconnect in those two things. The heart is the central place of our emotions. And so Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount makes a distinction between uh, being outward 
in sorrow, right? You're fasting and you're just, you're kind of going through the motions, putting on outward sorrow and lament, but the heart is far from that true feeling. Or we could be outwardly happy and joyful, but the heart would be distant from that true emotion. The heart is also the central place of our desires or uh, what others would call the affections. That is the things that we are longing for, that we're attaching ourselves to, that we in the heart we either bow down and worship the Lord or in the heart we construct idols and obey them. So in the heart is, is where we worship. The Bible says that we can give God worship, praise with our mouth, and have a heart that's far from him. The heart's also the, the central place of our behavior in the sense that it's where those sort of second nature impulsive actions come from. So think about the, you know better not to gossip, but you've done it anyway. You know better not to click the links, but you've done it anyway. You know better not to go that place, but you've done it anyway. And so Jesus says, from the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, or we think, or we act. And so those sort of second nature impulsive behaviors come out of the heart and into our, our physical actions, the words we say. And so when the Bible talks about having a pure heart, it's describing a heart where all four of those spiritual chambers are pumping together at the same time. They're in agreement with one another. They're not, one's not atrophied right? They're, they're all working in unison towards the same goal. And so we'll see as we go through this psalm that our psalmist here is having a spiritual heart attack, a spiritual crisis where those things are not pumping together. You could say more, probably spend a good Sunday in, in something like this concept. If you're interested in that, our uh, Antioch Academy discipleship emphasis is going to focus on the heart. So the heart of discipleship will be our workshop, and we'll kind of dive into what it looks like to walk with each other through shaping our heart that follows Jesus. So little, little trailer for that, but let's uh, keep going. Psalm 73 is about how only the goodness of God can put together the broken pieces of our hearts in a way that we can confess his goodness in any season. Verse uh, 2, 2 and 3, but as for me, okay, so God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart, I'm not experiencing that. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. So it's the image of someone who is walking along a, a pure path who just gets his feet taken out from under him. And what was it that, that did it? It was envy. It was envy. I was envious when I saw the prosperity or the peace or the shalom of the wicked. So it was the, the wicked experiencing the good things he thought belonged to him that took his feet out from under him. Can anyone else relate to that? Still with me? Okay. Like, imagine, right? Wait a second. I thought God had good things for me. Why am I out here struggling while everyone else has it easy? Like, what gives? 
And so, two things we need to note. Life with God isn't lived out in, in an idyllic world. Like, there's, there's sin and evil and suffering, and those things do not detract or take away from the goodness of God. So the, the Psalms especially hold those things in tension. And it's normal and okay and good, and there's grace in wrestling with those, that tension. That's a, that's a fine thing to do. That's what we're invited to do. But the second thing we need to take away, and that's the issue at heart with the psalmist, is it's not okay to start comparing your situation with the prosperity of others. That's the difference. So the psalmist starts comparing his situation with the wicked and essentially starts saying, they have it better than me, but I'm better than them. Like, what gives? They've, they're, they're doing a lot, they're a lot well off than me. I'm the, the faithful one. They're like the older brother who stayed home while the prodigal was out squandering wealth. Like, I, I've been here all along. Where's my party? And so he looks around and he's going to compare himself to the prosperity of the wicked. We'll go through these quickly. They're pretty obvious what they mean. And I'll add some comments for clarity along the way. What does he see in the wicked? Verse 4, they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They got the easy life. They're, they're fat and sleek, which is like, not like fat, like obese fat. They're just like, they're efficient eaters and they can do things, right? They're, they're big, they're, they might be muscular, they've got, you know, they're not, they're not suffering with ill health. They can eat what they want and still live well. They're fat and sleek. They, they don't suffer until death. They, they don't have any hardships. They're not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. And therefore, they wear pride like a necklace. They adorn themselves with violence. Pride and violence have consumed them that, that pride and violence have become their central identification point. They're people who take what they want by any means necessary. They're the go-getters. They take the world by force. Their eyes swell out through fatness. And their hearts, there's the word heart, their hearts overflow with follies. There's the sense that they're not satisfied with the excessive sin they've already accumulated. They need more. They sin out of excess. And so, as Paul says in Romans 1, they not only behave wickedly, that's not enough for them. Because they have to sin out of excess, they encourage others to do the same. And what do they say? Verse 8, they scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. Their tongue, in other words, conquers the earth, tramples up and down on the earth. It's the idea that the wicked have a voice that's louder than everyone else's. They've got greater influence over everybody else. They've got greater influence even over the people of God. Look at verse 10. Therefore, God's people turn back to them, and abundant waters are drunk by them. Your verse might have something different for that second half of verse 10, but generally the the translation is something like, the people have, have returned to the place of wickedness. God's people were led astray to the place of wickedness, and have either 
joined in with the folly of the wicked and squandered every blessing until there's nothing left. Or when they came back, the wicked have already squandered all the blessings that there's nothing left for the people of God there. Both bad, right? Both like not good situations. Because when you go back to sin, to the life you had before Jesus, to Egypt as Israel wants to, there's nothing left. Like think back to what God did when Israel left Egypt. Destroyed. What is there to go back to? Think about what God did when you left sin. Your life before him. Dead. Like that's what baptism celebrates. There's nothing left. All of those things have been destroyed. You won't find anything there. Verse 11 the wicked scoff. They say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Like, we're, we have it easy. There's nothing. If, if he really did know, like, surely he'd do something about this. Behold, these are the wicked, the psalmist writes, always at ease they increase in riches. And so how can we kind of sum this up and bring these things into our present moment? You're going to have to hang with me here, okay? So, I, I think this sums up in the sense of the wicked are disciples of personal optimization. Okay, again, hang with me. Disciples of personal optimization follow a doctrine that essentially goes like this. Do you have limits? Like, do you suffer? Are you unable to get ahead? Are you just like a normal person? You too! can experience whatever good life you want through personal optimization. You can do the breathing exercises. You can count your steps. You can follow the diet or take the pills or the supplements. You can read the books. You can go to the lectures. You can say the mantras. And with a little work and an insane amount of luck, you too can look like me. Ka-chow. Do we have a Lightning McQueen picture? Yeah, all right. That didn't land the way I wanted it to, but hey, it's there. All right, so that's, that's personal optimization. Hey, there's nothing wrong with, with doing things like the life hacks that help, right? There's a, there's a reason they work. God designed things to work in a certain way. The problem is try, that trying to obtain God's blessing through works of the flesh is the symptom of a broken heart. You can optimize yourself to experience great success and still be far off, far away from the goodness that God intends to you. Like you can, you can make all A's and fail life. You can get ahead and still be miles behind. As long as your manifested goodness comes through your own means, it will always be a cheap imitation of ultimate goodness that God has for you. The wicked are optimized. They wear the right things, pride, violence. They're fat and sleek. They eat the right stuff. They say the right words. They have it easy, optimized. And they increase in riches, success. And it's tempting to believe that goodness can be obtained through their ways. That's what the psalmist is tempted by. 
That's what he's, that's what he's being pulled by. Maybe I can do it their way. That's our second scene, the struggle. He's going to struggle with this. So verse 13, all in vain I've kept my heart clean and I've washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. And so he's looking out and he's seeing the ways of the wicked and he's like, maybe that, that's the way. And so he's reflecting back on his heart saying, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I've been purifying my heart in vain. I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. Like, either that's God's, like, law hanging over him or God's rebuking him every morning. Either way, he's, he's gotten to a point where the, his envy has caused him to realize, like, this is really hard. This is a really hard struggle to have. And because I can't rid myself of wanting what they have. That's not going anywhere. And... It seems like they're right. The wicked aren't plagued and rebuked by their conscience. They're constantly reminded of the law. They aren't constantly reminded of the law that they fail to live up. They just wake up and go. And so the psalmist is saying, maybe we should copy what they do. But something doesn't pass the sniff test for him, right? So good thing there's grace in struggling. Because he gets to a point in verse 15 where he says... If I had said, I would speak thus, or I will speak in this way, or this is going to be the story that I tell, okay? You get that? So if, if I said this, I'm going to say, we can, go, we can get good things after the ways of the wicked. If that'll be the story I tell, behold, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, and then I discerned their end. So once again, it's okay to struggle. It's okay to hold those two things in tension. Life is confusing and chaotic, and there's grace and kind of wrestling with it. What's not okay is turning away from God and turning to the ways of the wicked and trying to get the good things that only God can give you. And so the struggle here is is described, I think, beautifully in the words of, of Francis Schaeffer in his essay, The Lord's Work in the Lord's Way. So the struggle is to believe in the Lord's work in the Lord's way. Schaeffer writes this, Is it not amazing, though we know the power of the Holy Spirit can be ours, we still ape the world's wisdom, trust in its forms of publicity, its noise, and imitate its way of manipulating men. If we try to influence the world by using its methods, we are doing the Lord's work in the flesh. If we put activity, even good activity, at the center rather than trusting God, then there may be the power of the world, but we will lack the power of the Holy Spirit. The key question is this. As we work for God in this fallen world, what are we trusting in? To trust in particular methods is to copy the world and remove ourselves from the tremendous promise that we have something different. The power of the Holy Spirit rather than, than the power of human technique. The power of the Holy Spirit rather than the power of personal optimization. God has something better reserved for us. 
God has something better reserved for us. And it's not until the psalmist enters the sanctuary that he encounters the goodness that starts to put together those broken pieces of his heart. Scene three, the sanctuary. Young disciples, you'll need the word sanctuary. So we don't know exactly what he saw in the sanctuary, what he experienced in there that helped him kind of see the light, so to speak. But whatever it was, he has just a complete change of heart in the moment. Here's how he describes it. Verse 18. Truly you set them, the wicked, in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. Oh, how they're destroyed in a moment and swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakens, oh Lord, you rouse yourself. You despise them as phantoms. And so throughout the first half of the psalm, what you get is sort of like this this slow stumble. It's like Peter, he began to sink. Like, how do you begin to sink? But you get this, like, I be, he began to stumble and fall. You get this slow, sort of patient. God's kind of with him, watching him as he's struggling and holding these things in tension. But when he contemplates the wicked, it is not that way. When the wicked dwell on slippery slopes, like they build their houses there, And when God judges the wicked, when the wicked stumble and fall, it's not a slow descent into the arms of grace. When the wicked stumble, they are utterly swept away in a moment. God's judgment is quick. And it's mysterious. So it's like waking from a dream. It's sudden, mysterious. You ever wake up and like try to remember what you just dreamed about? When the wicked are judged, it's, they're like, what happened? I thought I was in a good place. And they reach their end. If we keep going, we'll see the psalmist turn his heart. Verse 21 through 23 was what really did it for me. This was like, thinking back to the vending machine, it was like the the candy bar was like stuck in the coils and then you like shook it and it finally hit the bottom. Like verse 21 through 23 was that moment of everything, the goodness coming out of the machine for me when the, when the bar finally dropped. Verse 21, when my soul was embittered and I was pricked in the heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. Nevertheless, I'm continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Amen. And so remember, if our heart is our central place of our identity and how we're relating to ourselves and others and to God, look at verse 22. When I was envious of the wicked, I was not being myself. I didn't know how to relate to you. I was an impulsive an irrational beast. I related to you as if I was an animal. When our hearts are dysfunctional, when they're not pumping in unison, when we're pulled and tugged by desires and, and behaviors that are unbecoming of the character that Christ has given us, we behave like animals. And you want to know why God is distant? Why your prayers seem to hit the ceiling? Why you feel like you're far away and you can't get close to Him? Because you're not acting like a human. 
Like God has a, wants a personal relationship with you and with the real you, the one he created you to be. And we can only come to him in pureness. We only come to him with a pure heart that's, that's beating and pumping and wanting him. And if you try to optimize yourself, if you try to put yourself together and duct tape that heart, he's just going to seem distant because it's dysfunctional. And you're acting like someone you weren't created to be. But thanks be to God that while we were still behaving like animals, Christ died for us. Right? So it's the recognition, the limping back to God in a posture of humility that brings the psalmist closer to the purified heart that experiences God's goodness. Verse 25. Here's the realization. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you will perish, but you put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. Again, you've got the whole verse 2 and 28 bookend, but the as for me's. So he's clearly in a different place than he was in the beginning. The great confession in verses 25 through 26. It's the confession of a pure heart. By focusing on God's goodness and patience towards him, the psalmist's desires have moved away from the prosperity of the wicked and have latched on to the goodness reserved for God's beloved. Look at verse 26. Um, yeah. Go back one. There yeah, my flesh and my, my heart may fail. His heart was spent. His heart was spent. All the struggle with envy, all the contemplation, all the toil. He's left to a point where he's like, I have, there's nothing in my heart that can, can do this. There's nothing left. Completely spent. Which is exactly where he needs to be. Right, Because he recognizes that strength has to come from outside of him. God has to be the strength of his heart. God has to be the one who helps him beat correctly. Psalm fifty-one, seventeen, psalmist writes, A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Psalm 147, 3, God heals up the brokenhearted and binds up all of their wounds. The optimized, the automated, the self-help heart, no the duct tape together, whatever you can do, pull yourself up by your bootstraps heart? No. The broken and beat up heart? The spent heart? Yeah. God can work with that. God wants to work with that. And so the strength to endure life with a pure heart has to come from outside of ourselves. Verse 26, or 27, or 26, sorry. The portion. God, God is the strength and the portion. What is meant by portion? It's kind of confusing, right? What, is, what does he mean by that? Here's the idea. While the rest of the world is running out after whatever they can sink their hands into, while their hearts are crumbling and atrophying with jealousy and lust, we have a place for our hearts to rest. We have a place where all of our desires are fulfilled to their ultimate end. And that fulfillment is our portion. 
God has reserved something better for us than our own efforts to get after whatever goodness we can get. God has reserved for us himself. Why do you want what the wicked have when it is always less than God himself? So the first time I engaged with this psalm, I got to verse 26. Truthful, I'm going to tell the truth moment, okay? I got to verse 26 and was like, that's it? Like, really? That does not help. It was kind of anticlimactic moment. Like, he's going to have a change of heart, and I'm like, I was like, really? Okay. Like, I kind of just feel like I'm back to the beginning, you know? Like, he's good, and that's me, and we're just going to, I could either leave here and pretend like that really made a difference, or I can keep struggling. And most of us, I think, experience this psalm and others like it and other sermons like this in that, like, scene two moment of struggling with, like, I know something's not right about this. And again, there's, there's grace in that. We, we tend to want an optimized gospel. Like, here's the pill, feel better. But that's not how God deals with us, right? How do, how's Israel shaped into who they're supposed to be? Forty years in the wilderness. Exile. Suffering. Struggle. What's, what comes before resurrection? Death. Right? Like God, we walk through struggle to get to the sanctuary. And sometimes you get to the end, you're like, I kind of have to go back to the beginning. Which is okay. Like in, in the next 16 psalms that come after this one are all like about the same thing. So, so take heart. You can keep reading your Bible and keep seeking the goodness of God. When we feel this way, God is teaching us to desire something different, right? If you felt this way and kept wanting what the, what the wicked had, if you felt this way and kept wanting to just kind of do it yourself, like something would be off. But if you feel this way and you're toiling and wanting to seek God, like that's right where you need to be. So take grace and comfort in that. God is teaching us to desire something different. He's teaching us to desire his abiding presence forever. The goodness of God all the time. God made that goodness possible for us by sending Jesus. Jesus, who unlike Asaph, unlike the psalmist, did not almost stumble with envy at the prosperity of the wicked. But Jesus, who was offered all the kingdoms of the world and denied them, and in exchange was thrown down by wicked men and judged unfairly. Jesus, who even though he kept his heart pure and continually experienced the goodness of God, willingly endured an unjust punishment, subjected himself to being treated like an animal, and who cried out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Jesus did all that because he's good. And goodness looks like this. It looks like resurrection. The one whose heart was truly pure was resurrected on the third day because it was impossible for him to be held by death. And through faith in his name is where we come in, right? 
through faith in His name, we identify ourselves with the purity of His sacrifice and the goodness of His resurrection. What does that mean? That means if you're a follower of Jesus, you live and will continue to live in the abiding presence of His goodness. There is never a time when God is not good to you. You live and will continue to live in the abiding goodness of His presence. He wants nothing but good things for you. And He's reserved nothing but good things for you in Himself. The challenge is, what do you do? You leave and try to just manifest your own goodness? Keep doing it yourself? Or will you take refuge in Him? Will you let Jesus be the strength of your heart that allows you to proclaim His goodness forever? God is good. And all the time. Here's how He gave us a tangible way to proclaim that goodness. On the night that He was betrayed, God, Jesus took a loaf of bread and broke it. And after blessing it, he gave it to his disciples and said, this is my body, which is broken for you. In the same way, he took a cup and blessed it. He said, this is the cup of the new covenant, my blood, which is spilled for you. Take this bread, take this cup. Whenever you eat and drink of it, you proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. Today at Antioch, we are announcing, proclaiming this. Say it with me. Our flesh and our hearts may fail, but God is the strength of our hearts and our portion forever. Church, our tradition here at Antioch is to come forward and to rip off a piece of bread and dip it in the juice. There'll be gluten-free bread over here. If you're a follower of Jesus, the invitation is examine yourself before coming forward and partake in communion. If you're not a follower of Jesus, we'd ask you that you would take up the better portion. You'd take up Jesus Christ himself, who has made himself available to you so that you could experience the abiding presence of his goodness. There'll be pastors in the back for anyone who has need. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you are truly good to us. And there are times when our hearts struggle to believe it. There are times when our hearts feel far from you. Would you overcome our dysfunction with your goodness? Would you make your presence known to us? Would you be real to our aching hearts? Would you help us to be encouragers to the world of a God who has good things stored up for them? And that they can lay the cheap knockoffs aside. Would you have grace over us and in our hearts that we might experience you truly. Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake.